Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hi, listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, ready to snap and dance his way to taking down a rival gang, is my best friend and co-host Aaron. Yes, I would much rather snap and dance my way, even though I'm not good at those things, than knife and gun my way to take you I down can, a rival game. Yeah, I can snap. I can't dance necessarily. But, you know, if if one of those gets me out of a fight or out of a rumble or lets me survive, then I'll take it. Hey, what animal would we be? So we have the sharks. We have the jets. What animal would our gang hmm. be if we were in West Side Story? The two of us in a gang, because obviously we have our own kind of... Yeah, no one else wants to be in our gang, so it's just us. <laughs> Maybe the hyenas, I would laugh. The hyenas, that. ooh, <laughs> I like that. That's scary. That yeah. is imposing. <laughs> and there's a lot of laughing involved, so I would definitely... We could also just say, yeah, we like to laugh at ourselves, maybe. So Probably, that would... So we'll... That we'll works. Give our, we'll give our, give hyenas our, it is. The field yes, film we'll hyenas. we'll give ourselves the self-imposed name of the hyenas. <laughs> I'll just keep snapping it. <laughs> well, if you haven't guessed it, this week our conversation takes us to the uh, gritty streets of New York, hanging out with the Jets and the Sharks and Steven Spielberg's updated version of West Side Story. We've covered the original back on episode 21, if you want to hear our thoughts there. But stick around as we discuss this 2021 take on the classic Romeo and Juliet tale. This is a 50-year-old story well you know if you're talking about shakespeare it's obviously older than that but between renditions of the original theatrical movie it's we're talking 50 years so this is your spoiler warning and if you haven't seen the original or you haven't seen this one obviously we're going to be spoiling both of them because the story is pretty much the same apart from a few minor details that we'll get into but considering this is your spoiler warning you have been warned as the warnings go so We'll go ahead and get nice. into it. Well, this movie, Aaron, is a long time coming. I think I remember us talking a little bit about this in terms of our back half of the year, maybe a couple of years ago, and then COVID ruined the world. And so things kept getting delayed. But this was definitely on my radar, I guess about three years ago when it was in production, but didn't really get a release date. I just remember seeing it on the tentative schedule. But I wanted to talk a little bit about expectations uh, general reactions to this entry. I know that you weren't as high on the original as I was. The original is one of my top five musicals. I believe Evan Hansen topped it because Evan Hansen really can't be beat in terms of just great musicals. But West Side Story has still held a great place in my heart. I love the music, love the lyrics, love the story itself. So going into this, not having a great amount of like wow expectations what did you uh what did you come away with well yeah my expectations were for spielberg first and foremost was i i want to see what this master filmmaker can do with a new genre that's always exciting he is truly visionary not a lot of directors really deserve when we call them that but spielberg is unique in his own way. I mean, he has tackled so many different genres and styles of movies. I mean, it was just a few years ago he was making what I consider to be a five-star CGI fest adaptation of a childish, nostalgic, you know, 
grab a video game movie so that I absolutely adore. And now here he is making this adaptation of a musical, right? So I was just fascinated to see how he transformed this in his way more so than anything, because I'll get into it more as we go. But the story for me is just not there's issues I have with this story that are inherent to both the Romeo Juliet story and just the ideas and the themes of what this movie is trying to convey that I don't react to or I don't resonate with. I don't like them. They, I have issues with them. So there's like a limit right to my love for this. And so outside of that, you know, I really enjoyed my first viewing. I saw it in a theater, saw it with my daughter. I thought that, you know, I was blown away mostly by the visuals and the cinematic nature of it. I think that's what is going to be the talking point for a lot of folks, whether you like musicals, don't like musicals, whether you love this story, don't love this story. I think the one thing that we could all agree on, no matter what, is going to be just how incredible it looks, the way the camera moves instead of being set on static shots like you would in a stage musical from the 60s. You know, back then, everything would just be kind of in frame and they'd be dancing within the frame. But here we have like a moving camera that's swirling all around people. I mean, it is dynamic and it is immersive and it is gorgeous. The choreography is incredible. It looks beautiful on the big screen. It's so colorful. And the technical aspects of this are just through the roof. And so that is to me undebatable. And I think for me, you know, even on the things that I didn't care for as much about it, I was always in this experience, sucked into this world, listening to the music and watching it on the big screen. And so I was excited about that. And then I watched it again, Patrick, recently, because I wanted to check a couple of things. I had some poor reactions to a couple of different performances that I wasn't quite sure why I was so far off the rest of the crowd. And I can tell you after watching it a second time that most of my, actually all of my non-story issues are gone. So the only things I have problems with now are the things that can't be changed because they were West Side Story, they were Romeo and Juliet, they, they will exist in every possible potential adaptation of this kind of material. It is what it is. And outside of that, man, I absolutely adore it. And I think it is a beautifully, wonderfully made film. And I really enjoy the heck out of it even if it's not a favorite and it yeah. is my favorite West side story. I can say that without a doubt. Well, I can, I can, I can double down on that. I think mine, it, it has surpassed the 1961 version as a favorite. And I think why it does that is primarily because of the fact that we get an updated traditional musical. We talked about this with John, the reviewer, when he came on for our greatest showman episode and we talked about the modern musical or the non-traditional musical how things like in the heights or dear evan hansen or the greatest showman come across more appealing to a modern audience because they don't feel classic they don't feel traditional and i think he even pushed back a little bit on the use of the word traditional or classic one of the two and opted to go with the other because when we look at West Side Story from the 1961 version, it feels very 
old. It feels very contained and very much a movie of the 60s. One of the big surprises for me was how I I didn't see a lot of trailers for it. I didn't really want to, and I'm not really watching a ton of trailers if I can help them. But when we get that opening shot with the whistle and we see the establishing shots of New York, we don't know in those first two or three minutes, is this modern New York? Is this post-apocalyptic New York? Because there's a lot of debris. And then we get the 1960s cars. We get the costumes. And so it tells us we're in the same time period, but it translates into such a fresh take on the story. And this is where I think Spielberg really shines is he didn't take this and say, okay, instead of taking like the TV movie It, for instance, and saying this is the 1950s to the 1990s, we're now going to update it. And now the kids are going to be from the 1980s and we're going to push them forward 30 years. No, he said, we're going to keep the setting the same. This is going to be 1960s New York. It's going to be just as gritty. It's just going to be more colorful, more vibrant. And I I think you're right in bringing up the idea of those dynamic shots. There is so much more energy to this version of the film. There's still bigness to it with Sondheim's lyrics and Bernstein's music. I mean, it's big. Like there is nothing to say both versions have this larger than life musicality to them. But when you add this modern tracking shots and all of this dynamic movement with the camera now all of a sudden you've got this energy of the the puerto rican neighborhoods and this energy of the american or the white neighbor or the (laughs) the gringo neighborhoods back and forth it doesn't feel like new york of avengers or new york of the modern day it feels like new york in the 1960s it's still big and still dirty but it feels like it's a movie that is made for the modern audience but still harkens back to a an era that is timeless to an extent and so being able to see that it's almost like giving a car a fresh coat of paint like restoring an old car to cherry it's it felt like that to me so getting a chance to watch this, again, this is one of the movies that my wife and I went to go see together. She absolutely loved it. This has become a tradition. We will watch a musical in December, and then she will play the soundtrack over and over and over again, and to a point where I almost get kind of annoyed with it, and I'm like, stop. I love it to a point. <laughs> I almost believe that The Greatest Showman dropped out of my top 10 that year because that soundtrack was played so much. Also, Ladybird was amazing, so it sort of retroactively became my number one. Still love Hugh Jackman, still love The Greatest Showman, but it's like Chick-fil-A for me. I've had it so much that I kind of don't want to revisit it for a while. Yeah. I'm hoping that I'm hoping that West Side Story doesn't do that because the fact is the performances were outstanding. We'll get into that here in just a little bit. But she was so taken by everything and so seeing her react to it hearing us being able to talk about it on the way home and it's those movies really get elevated because of my conversations with her i'm not just enjoying them on my own but independent of that i think spielberg does exactly what you said he has tackled a new genre and he's done masterfully well at taking this on do i want him doing more musicals i have no idea 
I, I don't know that I'd want to see him doing Oklahoma because I don't really care about it as much. But nope. there's relevancy to what West Side Story brings in terms of topicality, in terms of being able to relate to what's going on here and how some of these themes kind of carry themselves over. So I think he had that advantage. And well, I think he, this he, is a passion project too, a lifelong passion project. This wasn't just somebody was like, hey, Spielberg, we're going to do a West Side Story remake or, or re another adaptation of it, I guess you should say. And he, and he was like, you know, do you want to do this musical? Because you got nothing else going on. This was something he has always wanted to do. It's not like he just wanted to do a musical. He wanted to do this movie. That, and that's awesome. I think that when I watch what he did with West Side Story, it shouldn't surprise me because in a way he did the same thing or something similar to the other films that he's taken on in the last several years where you look at Ready Player One and we talk about the fact that we can love the book and the movie. He recognizes his audience. And so the things that he does in this version of West Side Story, it's not a shot for shot remake. He's not paying tribute to the characters or to the story. He is being authentic to the story and providing what he sees technologically as advantages to it. And he brings that story alive for his audience. Now, I will tell you, first and foremost, West Side Story is a long movie both the 1961 and the 2021 version. And I told my wife at the end, I always feel like the last third just sort of drags for me, especially when we get into after the fight, after the rumble, and we get I Feel Pretty, and then we get just these small kind of pockets of, of things. And there were parts of it that even in the original, I was like, okay, can I fast forward through this a little bit? But for the most part, everything held together. I was really engrossed with a lot of everything that was going on. It felt cohesive. It didn't feel like, okay, it's time for another number. Let's do that. Everything felt like it was stitched together really well. But the fact that it was stitched in ways that were a little bit different from its counterpart. And I think that that's a lot of fun to watch, to be able to experience, knowing how familiar I am with West Side Story I'm like, okay, how is the dance sequence going to play versus how it plays now? Oh, man, I really miss this, or I really miss that, or I'm glad they did this. And we'll get into that in a little bit, but I think that that's where Steven Spielberg shines, is that he says, okay, what's going to work thematically and cinematograph from a cinematic point of view that's going to keep the audience engaged? And I think he just knocked it out of the park with this one. So kudos, Spielberg. As you listen to this, you can call us up if you want an interview. We'll be glad to talk to you about this movie or anything else that you've got going or have done. And, you know, because I know that he's a regular listener, right? Maybe not. Oh, surely. <laughs> Before we get into the movie, I just wanted to touch on one topic that was kind of surprising. Listeners, I don't know if you're familiar with Patrick Willems. We've had him on the show a couple of times. He's a really great video essayist on YouTube, really popular there. But he made a comment about how he recognizes that we're living in a post-COVID world, that people are still kind of apprehensive about hitting the theaters, even though theaters are starting to open up more. And knowing that the the pre-release or the pre-release tickets for Spider-Man are pretty much predicting it being like a $200 million opening, he basically says, do yourself a favor, go see West Side Story. Because West Side Story, I think, ended up with like a 10 to $11 million opening this weekend. That's not surprising. It's not that West Side Story was a terrible movie. It's on track with things like Evan Hansen and In the Heights. I think In the Heights made like 11.5 its opening weekend. 
And it seems like to me, the musical, traditional or modern, struggles at the box office. I'm not going to ask why. I think I have my own theories. But do you think this should be an expectation now in light of the film landscape, Aaron? And, and do you think we should just continue to encourage filmmakers to make musicals, even though they're not going to be solid money-making films? Well, I mean, I yeah, I'm going to encourage I mean, you will. I, I mean, obviously, I still want the movies. We, but... are two, we are two people. But, you know, in terms of, I mean, do you, do you keep pumping out these like independent movies? I mean, just expect that, okay, these big budget films are not going to have a huge return. I working. worry about it. And I, you know, these returns are not good. You know, West Side Story was a hundred million ish to make, which means it's got to make a lot back. I think it has potential post blockbuster weekends that are coming up with Spider-Man and the Matrix. This is a movie that I expect a lot like The Greatest Showman. It landed in December, was not an immediate smash hit, but it had legs in January leading up to the Oscars. It got nominated, I think, and this, but I think West Side Story, I think, is going to have over half a dozen nominations. I think it's going to be a huge player in the Oscars, so it's going to have an opportunity to stay in theaters for a while. And I think as much as it can with regard to the nature of COVID being still a thing and variants and, and fears and it being targeted at more older adult audience members who are more likely to not go to the theater and take risks. You know, I think this, I think you have to take everyone in a vacuum. First of all, I don't think you can compare everything individually because West Side Story is also another adaptation of a musical that people already love. And that one best picture, one best freaking picture. So there's a lot of older adults who this is targeted at, really, who are like, well, why would I even need to go see another one? I was talking online to some people, you know, the average moviegoer has no earthly idea that Steven Spielberg is making this, if even if they've heard about it, right? Like people at work, they don't necessarily know that Steven Spielberg's making a musical. Like, why would you assume that? It has no movie stars in it. Greatest Showman, Hugh Jackman. La La Land, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. In the Heights, nobody. <laughs> Dear Evan Hansen, it has some, but not in the lead roles. And it has its whole other issues, you know, with people having problem with it. And it, But this has nobody. Ansel Elgort, the only real name in the movie, is currently embroiled in sexual assault allegations. Like, a lot of them. And fairly, people are holding that against him. They took him out of the marketing for the most part, for the better part of the last year leading up to this release. So they had to like be very stealthy, even marketing it to try and pull him out so that people don't, I guess, know he's there until they're in the movie. I don't know what they're doing, but yeah, there's like a million reasons why this movie is not blowing up right away. But I think it has potential to be a steady player Again, you can't compare it to like In the Heights. In the Heights was a day and date release. People could watch it at home on HBO Max the same day. So you can't draw any conclusions from that. We still have Wicked coming about a year from now, I think. I think after that, we might end up with somewhat of a lull. But this was never marketed at young crowds who were going to go and kind of be excited about the movie musical. I don't think, Patrick, overall, my gut tells me they're never going to be moneymakers. You're going to have to find a way to make these movies for 50 million bucks and make them look like a $100 million movie 
or $50 million. That's the way you're going to be successful. And I hope that they're able to continue to do that. You know, that's the other thing with like Greatest Showman and La La Land both. And even in the Heights with Lin-Manuel Miranda, all the music is not traditional stage Broadway music. It's Pasek and Paul. It's pop songs. Like these are catchy tunes that people like want to put on and play through on their radio and Spotify on in their car, driving down the road on their way back and forth to work. Most people aren't doing that to the West Side Story soundtrack. No matter how good you think it is, it's just not really normal. Other than your wife. Your wife is. We've learned. But... You know, you know what I mean? So I, there's a million reasons. I I don't think we can draw any like broad conclusions. I also think it's interesting when people talked about how, oh, look at this year, right? There's been four or five musicals because there's been a couple others that I've watched animated and straight to video home releases. Everybody's talking about Jamie and such. They're not they're not all like they weren't all like created to happen in this year. It wasn't like Hollywood was like, hey, guess what? Let's all get together <laughs> and make five or six new musicals and make 2021 the year of the musical. These things were coming out over a wide variety of time frames. And COVID happened and totally blew up the landscape and changed timing of everything, right? So it's a mess. And I think people care way too much <laughs> about it. The people that like dig into these numbers and try to predict things. I think it's a fool's game and I, you know, teach their own. If they're having fun with that, I get it. You know, make your predictions, enjoy talking about it if you want to, but don't worry about it. Just let it happen. And I personally don't think they're going to go away. But like I said, I do think that they may need to change. I don't think we're going to see more like this of old school revivals, I think we're going to see more, if anything, of like a Wicked. It's new, right? It's fresh. Dear Evan Hansen was fresh in the Heights. You know, I think we're going to see something new from Tick, Tick, Boom. I even mentioned Tick, Tick, Boom. Like, I think we're going to see more kind of modern musicals than we are bringing back old ones. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think that when you have something like West Side Story, it has to be a West Side Story in order to be critically successful and popular. And I say popular not in the box office sense, but in popular. the popular. <laughs> popular. Kind of, yeah. We're not. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. <laughs> but excessiver. But you're absolutely right when it comes to songs that you want to queue up and and sing in the car you could obviously do that with the greatest showman and for the next five weeks that's what we did and when we got my son hooked on it it just doubly triply was on repeat my wife would tell you that anza elcourt needs to do a christmas album at some point because she would totally listen to that she fell in love with his voice and i was like are we are we done are we done with our relationship because i can't sound like that she's like maybe you know she didn't say that i'm just like this is the dialogue happening in my head and she's like ubering you know oogling over his voice and i'm like you know he doesn't sing at all in baby driver he's pretty good in that he listens to music instead of singing it so that's you know pretty fun and then you know he's also post-apocalyptic and all that kind of stuff which is really surprising aaron because i never would have put him in this kind of world and he's got an amazing voice i mean it is it is pretty phenomenal and he and Rachel uh, Zegler are just amazing. 
together with their voice combination. It's just awesome. And and I think this is just this is good stuff. And maybe a Christmas album is not too far fetched for him. You know, well, since you're bringing him up and I'm I'm very curious, I was or I was very curious what you thought of his performance. So generally speaking, the discourse online, the discourse from the majority of critics is this movie is amazing, but Ansel Elgort sucks that he doesn't live up to the rest of the cast, yada, 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 right? I completely disagree as well. And so I think there is something to be said about the allegations that he faces and letting that play into your perception of him. And I'm not going to knock anybody for that, but I think that it's the unsaid reason behind it because I thought he sang beautifully as well. And I was reading a quote from Spielberg that I thought really is exactly what my experience with him in the movie was. Spielberg said when he auditioned, he immediately was able to be both boy and man. And at times he could be so vulnerable and so heartbrokenly in love and just a mess. And yet there were shots where he would frame him and he looked like Marlon Brando. And I completely agreed with that perception of him. And I thought he was great in the role. And I think you're going to see a difference. You know, I, I know that he sounds different than them. This is also part of what happens when you put an actor, like just an actor in a movie with almost everybody else in that cast is classically trained Broadway theater kids. So I'm sorry, but he's not going to sound quite the same as them. I still loved it. But yeah, he's definitely a little bit of a different level, vocally speaking, I think. But yeah, I, I just don't understand the distaste for his performance. Like as his performance, I thought he nailed this role. I mean, he was, to me, he's way better than the original Tony. Well, I think what he brings is a, is a softness to the character. And I think that's what Tony, this is, this is where I think the 2021 version really gets the original, gets the story right, is that we have a softer version of Tony in the way in which he looks like he doesn't look tough. The original Tony is tall and he's muscular. He doesn't look like a brute, but you, you know that he could probably wail on somebody if he needed to. And Ansel comes around. I didn't really love his New York accent. I'm glad it wasn't overly thick, but you're exactly right. There are times when he is framed as a young Marlon Brando in the way he looks. He's got this soft face and this soft look to him that allow us to really believe, man, he's got the sensitivity to fall in love with this girl. One of the things that I absolutely loved about this version is we get a little bit more backstory about where he's coming from. The original story we see we see him get introduced and we're told, oh, he's on probation. He's, you know, doing the thing with the soda soda bottles and and stuff like that. And we don't get much else. We just know he's gotten out of jail. And in the next scene, we see him fall in love with Maria. Whereas this one, there's that great scene down in the basement of the drugstore. And he has this kind of regret. And I, I kind of harken back a little bit to the Fast and the Furious where where we have Dom who said, I'm not going to go back. I re he essentially regrets what he does a little bit. And so there's that remorse that we get from, from Tony. 
that we don't see in the in the 61 version and that gives a little bit more agency for him to have reluctance to go to the dance but he finally does and then he sees maria that's one small disconnect that i have and this is probably a product of the story itself being based off of romeo and juliet is there was a quickness that came from him falling in love with her and over the course of what two days he's ready to marry this girl and run away with her i have to kind of lean into the shakespearean side of that and i think that it's a credit to spielberg and the storytelling that i struggled with it because the story was telling itself in a way that i wanted more background i wanted more time with these characters but the fact is the story does not take place over months at a time it could but then that would really stretch it not lengthwise but it would stretch it in terms of believability and so i had to kind of lean back into the shakespearean side of things and say hey this is based off of a play where over the course of two or three nights there's a guy who falls in love with a girl that he's not supposed to and they have this fly by the seat of your pants romance and after i sort of settled that i really started to enjoy the performance and so when you watch him perform with her i think whether or not he's classically trained it's not like he's coming across like ben platt in a modern singability he's not coming across as a pop star he is crooning he's singing and he does have a good voice he can carry a tune and he's not just carrying a tune he has great range he's got a great register so i didn't feel at all like he was out of place with the rest of the cast in fact i think it was reinforced by the way the choreography and the way he was able to show some athleticism in some of these numbers that really made me feel like yeah he's good stuff and you know i i don't like the idea of negating a person's performance based on their personal stuff going on i mean this same thing happened with casey affleck uh several years ago and i think we talked about this on the podcast how does he deserve a an oscar nomination or even an oscar for uh those are accusations of sexual assault eh, i think those are mutually exclusive things aaron i think the fact is you can be a jerk but be a really good actor there's a lot yep. of those out there yep and if you're going to see an oscar as a way to validate a person's character i don't think that's a great way to do that i think you the oscar should just be that it should be an award for a performance not a reward for a person's character or a person's thing and i think that kind of leans into the whole idea of like look <laughs> you're accepting an award for a performance you gave don't get up there and feel like you have to say something important about the world right yeah i will say like I, I just understand it in this case because his accusations are specifically multiple underage girls or girls who were anywhere from 14 to 17 talking about how he kind of was a predator to them on snapchat giving him his personal snapchat treating ghosting them after having sexual relationships with them and things like things of this nature and so when your character is also like romancing a 17 year old girl like there's a direct parallel that i can understand if i was a you know someone who couldn't get past that that all aside i'm glad you brought up the plot so can, can i like get this off my chest so here's a thing the love at first sight this is part of my problem it kind of became a little 
clearer to me what my main issue is in my second viewing, which I appreciated because it didn't bother me as much. So I actually got swept up in the whirlwind romance as well. The first, you know, half of the movie. And I think that they did a really good job. I really paid attention this time. How many scenes do we get with them in that 24-hour period and what is taking place? Like how much character development, relationship development, how much they learn about each other. They did as good of a job as you can do with that, with as much time as you're giving them together. And so I actually don't mind the idea of two people, quote, falling in love. I understand those feelings. I can resonate with that very deeply. Where my issues with this story come in are with the decisions the characters make in the specific ending of this movie. My problem primarily lies in that there's two there's two big issues I have with the film. One of them is this, and the other one I'll tell you afterwards. But this one is that when we get towards the end, and Maria knows that Tony has killed her brother, she chooses to continue being with him. And, and it becomes her live or die. Like she's willing to throw everybody else away in order to make this happen because she doesn't want to lose him too, right? She specifically tells him that she's like, don't let them, don't take, don't let them take you away from me also. And it's framed as this theme for audiences to take away of forgiveness over hate. That is what the movie is really kind of about, right? Is choose love, choose forgiveness. We have to break the cycle of continuing to hate each other and revenge, yada, yada, yada. So I think that there's somewhere in the middle that needed that, that it doesn't allow this movie to be what it is, obviously, but it, it's hard for me to get behind it because I don't see it as being realistic that she's just jumping into bed with this guy literally when he's coming back from killing her brother. That doesn't make any sense to me. And then the way in which she defends him going forward. My other the other problem with that is that he it's whether or not you're worthy of forgiveness does not make you worthy of love. There, these are two, and I I say love, romantic love, right? Two separate concepts to me. Tony chose to kill Bernardo. This is not a tragic victimization of Tony where he was in the wrong place at the wrong time and something happened. Tony made a choice. Now, was he influenced in the moment by rage? Absolutely. Does that absolve him of murdering Bernardo in revenge? Nope. Not to me it doesn't. Which then, when we get to that point in the movie, really struggle with like caring <laughs> about what happens to these two and how they don't get to be together. I actually am perfectly fine with them not getting to be together. So that part just kind of doesn't, that's where this movie, that's where the whole story I was telling you inherently just doesn't work for me. You know, when they're walking off in the inn and they're all jointly carrying his body, it's like, Really? This is the thing that's bringing you together? Like, this is, no one has actually learned anything about each other, really. You guys haven't started to talk and have conversations and be willing to share one another's, you know, you know, territory because you understand why it's important. It just didn't, feels false to me. The other big problem I have with the movie, and I can't remember if this is part of the original, I didn't rewatch it and I haven't watched it since our podcast on it a couple of years ago is the Jets in general, they're not likable. I don't find them redeemable. That sexual assault scene bothered me, not because it's in there, because I know it's part of the original or whatever, but 
it really solidifies like there's not where's the good in these guys what is it what are we fighting for what am i supposed to feel sorry for them and and the problem is the movie needs you to get to that point like i can respect and i can follow along the story when it's this kind of tragic tale of these two groups of people who both know the value of land and want the same land and they're kind of outcasts in their own way they're banded together and they're trying to own all these things like i can kind of get behind all that but you can be all of those things without sexually assaulting a girl for no reason like no reason it's just it's it's baffling and it and it hurts me because then the end comes this movie and i'm supposed to be feeling patrick i'm supposed to be like I don't know. I, it feels like I'm supposed to see this as some big redemptive moment in the end that they're learning a message and they're coming together to do this thing and it's going to be better in the end. Like there's a future hope. And I don't see that play out in the way that I think the movie needs me to. So those are my big issues. But luckily, it's that last quarter of the movie. And this second viewing for me, I realized that that first three quarters of the movie is a banger and I absolutely love it and I have no problems watching it and rewatching it. I think you're you're pretty spot on with the reaction and some of the issues that both of the versions deal with is in spite of its length when you deal with murder when you deal with revenge those are themes and ideas that need time to breathe and they need time to really kind of learn to understand the weight of those things, you have to be able to grieve. And so what you have in a movie like West Side Story, in a story like West Side Story, is the the problem of it being a musical. <laughs> it's difficult to capture, maybe in a classic sense or in a traditional sense, these heavier ideas this is where i think we fell in love with evan hansen because when you deal with depression those ideas flesh themselves out in a way that allow you to care about the characters and it, they have time to sort of walk through these things whereas west side story again it literally takes place over a 48 hour period they have the dance well if we start from the beginning you start like on a during a day and then there's a night for the dance, then the next day and the night's the rumble, and then I think either another day takes place or maybe it's later on that that night. So there is a rapid timeline of things that happen. And so when you get somebody like Anita, who is absolutely pissed that her boyfriend slash fiance slash whatever he was in Bernardo is killed. She has no time to grieve. And so she's talking to Maria and Maria's like, what should I do? Can you ever, can you forgive me? And she goes, don't make me ask that or don't make me answer that question. Same thing with Tony. And it's like, you have all of this stuff that should be taking place over the course of months and years happening in a five minute conversation. And it really finds its difficulty in resolution you just can't get there and so for me i've learned to accept that about this movie that 
if it tries to teach me about redemption, it's not going to get there. I think that last moment, which is for me a really fantastic shot of half of the jets and half of the sharks framed in a way that's almost like a like a staircase. I love it and how they're carrying Tony off and they end up walking back into the drugstore as the camera pans up. To me, I think that without any dialogue, without any kind of word or music tells me more about what the movie's trying to say. That it's going to take time and it's going to start by stopping. We cannot continue to react to the way we are. But it's a messy way to get there. It absolutely is. And what I can appreciate is not that the story is compelling, but that the performances in the story are what I sit in my seat for. That I want to watch how these guys get from point A to point B and be forgiving of the timeline. Like I said, I think I feel pretty inside that store is completely out of place. I didn't like it in the 1961 version. I still don't like it now. And it's not like the performance is bad. I just don't like the song. It's just annoying to me. And I, because for me, the, the, the next scene, the scene before it and the scene after it are, yeah, it's, it's just, so, it's so annoying. So, it's so high pitched. It, it's just, it's just not good for me. And I'll be fine saying that. I think Zegler nails it, but she nails a bunch of other songs more. And the very next scene is her talking to Chino and then all hell breaks loose. And now we get into like what I call the good parts of the movie or the back into the better parts. And I feel like there was this like reprieve of like, eh, this just looks weird. I don't want this. But you're right. You get those scenes where her brother's just been killed. His killer comes through the window and then they have sex. And I'm like, that just doesn't make sense. It doesn't. But again, Shakespearean plays don't work that way. There is no time to grieve. It's all poetic. It's all romantic. It's all beats and high level themes that you're left going, not thinking about, you know, how does this make me feel? Or how, how should I really react to this? I, again, I think Steven Spielberg is working with something so amazing that he's put together a product that sort of forces that weirdness to come out. The 61 version, it has that, but I think it's a lot more subtle because the musical itself is not like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. And I don't feel like when I watch the original that I'm left feeling these ideas. That's where I think the changes made to this one are potentially effective. Not necessarily effective, but potentially, again, we have Tony talking to Riff about why he doesn't want to go back to prison, about being careful. We don't get that in the original. We get these quiet moments of, with, there are so many great moments with Riff and Tony that I think we don't get to see in the original. And I think that's by design. And I think when you watch the 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 number cool play out in a different way than its original counterpart it adds so much more to tony and riff's relationship because you really do have this tension of like do i choose my buddy or do i choose my girl that's how i felt in the 61 version now i'm like do i choose loyalty or do i choose 
loyalty of love, you know, loyalty of a deep-seated friendship that has history over that. And that's what makes the, 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 the rumble so great because it has that kind of weight. The problem is we're living in a two-and-a-half-hour musical that takes place over two nights, and it's all truncated. So some of those moments that we want to breathe with that, it, it doesn't allow for that. Yeah, I agree with I so wholeheartedly with all of that. And and it's and do I choose the smart route or do I choose the route that I know has gotten me in trouble before? You know, like you're making all those choices. I don't actually love that number, but I love what it stands for and what it means and the character development of it. I don't think it's nearly my favorite song. I could throw the song out the window, honestly, and I don't think that, you know, watching it is not that important to me but man there's a final shot at the end of that number the look the tear right and the look on his face and you can tell that relationship has changed forever and it's it is very impactful one of the other changes spielberg made that i think is really good is in the sexual assault scene the other girls so the shark or the jet girls right they're making fun of and they're like harping on anita as well but when the boys go after her the girls stick up for her and they're like no stop this is too far and they they try to defend her and that feels very modern feels very you know indicative of what we would expect is to like try and stop it when you see it say something um and it and it was pretty powerful and painful to watch them kind of get locked outside you know and trying to bash on the windows like stop this stop this trying to stick up for this fellow woman who was being assaulted so that was an addition that i thought was pretty strong as well um, and then of course got valentina oh gosh this was probably my favorite addition to spielberg is i thought it was going to be so dumb i'm not gonna lie when i heard that they cast her i thought it was going to be for cameo purposes only and they were going to just try and play on nostalgia like everybody in Hollywood does these days. Mm-hmm. And I was so pleasantly surprised to see her matter as a agency. character. Agency, right? He is talking to her, he being um, he being Tony. He's got this relationship with her, trying to learn the language and trying to figure things out. The fact that she married a gringo, but she's not a gringa. Like she, she makes it a point to carry on her Puerto Rican heritage. And it's almost as if her character Anita is sort of living vicariously in this new world. It's almost I know it's not Anita, I know it's 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 Valentina, but I love that. I love the fact that she was included not for nostalgia purposes, but because she mattered, because she absolutely helps Tony reconcile and understand the importance of the dangers of what he's about to do. And when she comes up from the the basement, how you could see the hurt in her. She says, I grew up, you, you, you all, you kids grew up in front of me. And what have you turned yourselves into? That scene was so pivotal because I can't remember who it was. Maybe it was when baby John, I can't remember when, when the character's was asked what do we do now he goes it's over or it's done and they all just start walking out and at that point you know there's nothing more they can do that scene itself the the rape scene 
I remember Rita Moreno talking about how that was scary for her when she was Anita in the 61 version that I don't know that she was, the director didn't give direction, but I think he just let it go on. And she was, the reaction that you see in the film is her legit reaction. Like she's freaking out. Krisha was asking me afterwards, she said, do you think that Spielberg toned it down or didn't want to go so far into it that it became pretty scary. And I said, look, I I think it was pretty intense by itself. And she agreed. She said, having never experienced that, that was giving her anxiety watching that. Because she was making a comment that the language in the movie was a little saltier than what we expected from its original. There was some, some language here and there, and there was some, uh, <laughs> some sexual, like the opening sequence. What's his name coming out of the trailer and then his girl coming behind him like, oh, okay, I see what's going on here. The- well, they say a couple times in the movie, they say womb to tomb. Um, oh, sperm to worm. Sperm to worm. worm. I posted a Twitter <laughs> yeah. I posted a Twitter poll tonight before our episode asking folks which one is the better proclamation of brotherhood. And sperm to worm is running away with it, just so you know. <laughs> when I heard sperm to worm, I was like, okay, we're in 2021. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> I also thought, and this was kind of ahead of watching the movie, I had heard that there was going to be a lot of Spanish speaking, more so than what we see from the 1961 version, but that it wasn't going to be subtitled. And there was a lot of pushback for for and against it. Like There was some dissonance on the, uh, on the message boards on social media about how is this going to play. And I have learned, Aaron, not to overreact or pre-react before I experienced something. I did have my apprehensions. And when I remember you posted something on Facebook about Spielberg intentionally leaving out subtitles to elevate the Spanish language. I don't I didn't get to read the article. It was just a screenshot. But I was kind of taken aback and I was like, really, is this is this kind of hitting into the wokeness aspect of things? And it got me thinking about Coda, and I'm like, you know what? You can appreciate a language that you don't normally speak without alienating your audience. But, you know, when I watched the movie, I didn't feel lost. I didn't feel like, man, what are they saying? Because I think it allowed body language and a mix of English here and there, and the struggle with going back and forth and having to be Puerto Rican or having to be American, but trying not to lose your culture and be able to speak normally or not speak normally, but speak in your native language. I think that was brought to the forefront and that was effective for me. I didn't feel there was a great moment after Chino is talking to Maria and he's telling her in Spanish that Bernardo is dead. And she tells him, because I remember from the original, she tells him is Tony dead? And he gets so mad and he says, Tony killed Bernardo, but it's all done in Spanish. And I'm like, I knew what was being said because I was familiar with the dialogue, but seeing how they were saying it in Spanish and seeing how they were reacting and emoting was really effective. So for me, I wasn't bothered by it. I don't know that it necessarily elevated or devalued. I thought it felt very natural to listen to these conversations, not knowing what was going on. And not really caring about what was being said because you could almost pick up 
the anger or the any, any of the emotion that was happening in these uh, sets of dialogue. Well, I ranted about this on FF Plus, so I won't go quite as hard at the, as I did at the time. I, I don't mind it in a huge way. I, I agree that there are parts of it where you definitely can get the vibe. There are scenes that transition between Spanish and English where it's easy to kind of follow the flow of the tone and the, the mood that characters are acting with in other ways. And oftentimes in those conversations, it'll be like something said in Spanish and then someone will say something in English right afterwards. It's a mix. And so it's very clear that they're they're trying to get that point across. For me, the point you just brought up, I didn't know that. Does it matter? Probably not in the bigger scheme of things, but it still bothers me because there are some conversations. There's an entire song that's in Spanish at the the junkyard or whatever when they have their first fight there's an entire song in spanish i don't know what's being said so i wanted to be able to understand the dialogue and i and i don't like it i don't like the reason behind it i don't necessarily agree with the reason behind it so i one issue that i saw was maybe the driving force for this is that if you're an english speaker only and you're watching this, you're watching it from the perspective of the Jets. And so in context, you wouldn't, if you were the Jets, you wouldn't know what they were saying. And so you're kind of being put in that POV of those characters. If that was only when Jets were present that the movie did that, it would make more sense to me because of that reason, but it's not. The other, and then the, uh, the flip side would be, you know, the POV of, a Spanish-speaking, you know, American who has to deal with this perception of them and constantly being told, no, speak in English, speak in English, speak in English, which I don't necessarily think is a knock at times. Like, this was in the 50s, I think it's in. And so when the police officer is saying, like, no, I need you to speak in English because that's all I speak, it makes sense that that's an expectation at the time. So I, I get it. I, I get it. I have seen on Twitter some of our friends, actually Colby, uh, in his podcast called the Minorities Report podcast, and I know he has at least one um, Latin host as well who was pretty upset, I guess, with the representation, and I was trying to find out what it was he had an issue with. So I'd encourage everyone to maybe listen to their podcast too to get a different perspective on this. I don't know exactly, but I wonder if it. he said it doesn't treat us like Puerto Ricans. He said it does not actually do anything to say they're Puerto Rican other than literally the dialogue saying we're from Puerto Rico. And I asked, I said, so is it kind of, you know, to compare it to like In the Heights, you know, In the Heights is very detailed about the culture that they are bringing over and parts of that that they are bringing to New York in this barrio and, and you know, it's thriving. It's not just a word. And in this one, it's just the fact that they speak Spanish and they say they're from Puerto Rico. And every, otherwise, you might not know what they were as far as ethnicity-wise. And so I can understand where maybe that was an issue for him. Obviously, I'm the white guy who just took it as face value of, oh, okay, they're from Puerto Rico, so I'm just going to accept that. But I understand where he might be coming from and that there's nothing that says Puerto Rico to me that's not Cuba or, you know, other 
nations that speak the same type of Spanish. You know, some of the actresses and actors in this are not all Puerto Rican either. Um, and there's that. So, yeah, it, it's got some some interesting things about it like that. Nothing that takes me out of the movie as an entertainment yeah. piece, though. But I don't know that that's necessarily the point of the movie either. I mean, we have to think about when it comes to what's the point. It's not about representing two different countries. I mean, there's a whole freaking song about America. And it's about this contrast of not dissing Puerto Rico, but about sarcastically or sincerely mentioning opportunities in America. It's this is not a patriotic movie by any means, but I don't think it's all I don't think it's entirely a political one either. I think it's one that says, look, assimilation to a new country that's not your own is going to cause you to potentially lose your heritage. And you're right, this is an American made movie, or excuse me, stage production turned into an American made movie that is from an American perspective. And whether or not it's supposed to be fully represented and we're supposed to get an in the heights vibe from it, I think it becomes a four hour movie at that point. Because that's not that's not the focal point. In the Heights is about vaulting and elevating a culture inside this microcosm of America. And what we have here is New York that is completely run down. And it's validated at the very beginning, Aaron. And we have the detective that says, look, this whole place is coming down and you're going to get these luxury apartments. And from his racist perspective, he's saying, you guys can either pick yourself up by your bootstraps and become some of these tenants and let these Puerto Ricans serve you, or you're going to end up living on your port, you know, sitting on your porch, drinking beer and talking about how things were. So there is a, there's less about vaulting being American versus being Puerto Rican. It's about this melting pot of culture has the ability to allow you to maintain your culture or to lose it. And I, I don't know that that was necessarily a focal point. And if it had been, I think we would have lost everything that we got in it. So from a white guy saying this, I could be completely wrong. So I will fully admit if I am, I didn't see it that way though. I didn't see a misrepresentation of a particular culture because that's not what the focal point of the film was. I'll tell you what the focal point of the film was for me was great numbers. And I think that we had a fantastic amount. You mentioned cool. I thought that was my least favorite because the choreography from the 1961 performance was light years ahead and light years better. Like I love the snapping. I love the bigness of it, but I did love how it was used to carry the story forward. The the number that stood out to me, Aaron, was Officer Krupke. Of that course. was absolutely no, me. yeah, but because it was so different, like the it was just phenomenal. The use of space, the blocking, everything about that was just absolutely fantastic. And if I had to, that's the thing is I can't listen to that on Spotify and enjoy it. I have to watch the number, and I think that's the way it is with all of these these numbers is. They're they're singable, but they're not sing-alongable. I can listen to them, but I have to experience them within the context of the movie 
to really, really enjoy it. And Officer Krupke is a fantastic example of that. I can listen to Cool all day because I love how it sounds, but Officer Krupke just sounds goofy if you don't see it in context of this entire sequence. Were there any that stood out to you in terms of like big winners of the movie for you? Officer Krupke obviously was, I think, the biggest one for me. I really enjoyed tonight and just the way in which the reprise, reprise, reprise is used throughout the film. Honestly, like, you know, it comes into play. This is a very musical thing. They introduce it and then it happens and it shows up in little parts of different songs. And I thought that that was outstanding. Maria in general was just a beautiful, wonderful moment for me as well. Just the way that Ansel is all up on that balcony. Like you talked about his physicality and that scene in particular. I just love the way it looks and the way it was filmed. And so those really stood out to me big time. The rest, you know, it's it's interesting you mentioned that. I think that's part of what it is for me is the singableness of it. This is not one that I go back to. I know these songs. They're very memorable to me. And when I hear them, I oftentimes will be like, I know that song and I can start singing it and I won't remember where it came from because I'm not putting two and two together in that way. So I like the numbers and context of them in the musical itself, but it is not a soundtrack that I personally have any desire to really listen to at all. I need the choreography along with them. And so the numbers for me were definitely the ones that had big bombastic choreography yeah i thought um america was pretty fantastic i love the street choreography the the original i think was done on a rooftop but it was still pretty big this i think really celebrated and really vaulted steven spielberg's camera work because we had a lot of wide shots we had a lot of moving cameras and even the reactions from some of the neighborhood folks are like wow what's going on here they're basically stopping traffic it's so good i also thought i was torn on the dance sequence because i liked the way the original choreography played especially when maria and tony see each other how everybody slows down i didn't really like the idea of them being like behind the bleachers that looked kind of sketchy to me <laughs> and in light of what you're telling me about Ansel, i was like Okay, maybe not. Maybe that's not the best way to, to introduce their relationship. But I missed the slow down choreography, the sort of blurred out, like they're in this sort of dream sequence. That probably wouldn't have played as well in a in this updated version, but I did miss that. But overall, I thought all of the performances were fantastic. Riff, to me, stood out. Like, Riff is forgettable in the original. Tony stands out in the original. Riff is fantastic and to see him go through this whole sequence of dedication to tony and feeling legit like he's been betrayed even up to the point in the rumble where he wants to fight it makes sense it makes sense he wants to say okay if you're not going to do this i'm going to do it and i almost felt for him i almost had some empathy for for riff because i'm like yeah look he's the one that put this together this is his crew this is the folks, these are the folks that he is representing, earth to turf, you know, sperm to worm. All these things are absolutely in dedication to this crew of people. And 
to him, here comes Tony, like trying to be the voice of reason. And he's like, no, we're past that. It doesn't work. The problem is Bernardo has an issue with Tony, not with Riff. And then when we get the death scene, it's like, wow. And I love the moment with him talking to Tony saying, it's okay, pull it out. And it's almost like he forgives him. Oh man, it was heartbreaking. <laughs> and so it made sense when we see Tony just go, just AWOL and go after, go after Bernardo. That fight sequence, Aaron, felt probably the most real of any of the emotional scenes outside of, of Tony and, and Maria. It felt really, it felt less choreographed and more realistic. Like, wow, they're about to throw down and they didn't, you know, they weren't dance fighting like that. They weren't doing that kind of craziness. But I think, I think Riv really anchored the movie for me and I loved his performance. Yeah, Riff and then Ariana. Uh, well, Riff, for me, it took some time. Uh, the first viewing, I actually didn't like him at all. And that was in my review. It just didn't work for me. I don't know what it was. I was so hyper-focused on Tony. And there was such a difference in Riff's character versus the way that the rest of the Jets acted at times. And then also the way that Tony acts. This time, it really com it was a 180 for me in my second viewing. And he... Don called him the catalyst, and I think that's a perfect word for it because he is, emotionally speaking, he is. And the rest of Jets are actually kind of hokey in everything other than Officer Krupke. Well, they're hokey in Officer Krupke too, but it just works because of that's a goofy number. But Riff was phenomenal. Mike Faced is the actor. And then I came to find out today that Mike Faced was the original Connor Murphy in the Broadway production of Dear Evan Hansen. And so now I can't unknow that. And I'm just in love with him all the more. Right. But Ariana DeBase, uh, DeBose also, I think, is just incredible to be taking over for the legendary performance of Rita Marino and knocking it out of the park in her own way. Her voice is unreal. And I thought that she probably was the better acting performance overall. I mean, it's hard for me to say. I think you could potentially see nominations for Faced, DeBose, and Zegler for this movie, and I would not have a problem with that. I've seen Rita Marino thrown away around as well for supporting actress. I personally don't go there because I think Ariana DeBose has such a bigger part in this one movie, and I don't see the need to put two of them in there. But yeah, it, it's a really strong cast and David Alvarez, I believe his name, Bernardo also phenomenal performance. There, there's a lot of emotional acting that goes on in the facial expressions and in, in the Spanish speaking that I don't actually get to know what is being said, but I can read the emotions that are taking place, Bernardo and the responsibility that he feels to, you know, lead this crew. Like he's telling Chino, he's like, this has to happen. We have to do this to protect the group. But like, this is not good work. This is not positive. This is dangerous. And I don't want you to be a part of this, but it has to happen. And this is my cross to bear. And you can feel that in him all the way through. Um, so yeah, I think, man, the cast overall is just really excellent. Well, I don't have anything else unless you do. Uh, we can go ahead and wrap this one up. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, stick around this week, listen to this episode, and also stick around for next week. We're going to stay in New York as we finish off the, I would say, the last entry of the Spider-Man series, but apparently Sony and Disney have a lot of plans for us. 
uh, when it comes to the Spider-Verse. So we'll be covering Spider-Man No Way Home, coming back to enjoy that. So in the meantime, enjoy listening to us. Enjoy connecting with us in face group and face group. What did I say? Face group, Facebook and Discord. Join us for this conversation and others as you see fit. Aaron, thanks for this one, man. And we'll talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.